This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, in Trump's latest blow-up over immigration, Stephen Miller has played a central role, goading him to close the border, warning him of the dangers of looking weak, and encouraging his sudden purge of his Homeland Security team. But who is this Stephen Miller? He grew up in liberal Santa Monica. What happened? What went wrong? Lori Weiner will report. Also, there's a new show premiering on TV this week, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. It's a four-hour documentary produced and hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. exploring the years after the Civil War when the country struggled with revolutionary social change, the creation of the first interracial democracy in the world. Historian Eric Foner will explain. But first, our look at today's bad news. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, maybe you heard the news this morning. Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, has been arrested in Britain, and the Trump administration is seeking to extradite him to the United States on criminal charges. The charges stem from the release by WikiLeaks in 2010 of government files that documented American forces killing civilians and journalists in Iraq and abusing detainees. So the Trump administration is seeking to extradite and punish a foreign journalist, for publishing truthful information. The Obama administration considered bringing these same charges against Assange, but decided not to. You may recall that an Army private Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, was convicted of leaking that collection of files and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. But Obama commuted the sentence after Chelsea Manning had served almost seven years But now Chelsea Manning has been imprisoned again by the Trump administration for refusing to give evidence to a secret grand jury in a WikiLeaks investigation. That is an outrage. We consider WikiLeaks a journalistic organization. It did the same thing in this case that the New York Times did when it published the Pentagon Papers. Those were stolen Defense Department documents about the Vietnam War that were classified. The indictment of Julian Assange is very narrow and technical. It's not for espionage. It's for working with Chelsea Manning to hack into a government computer. But it also includes, as criminal acts, the following. Quote, Assange encouraged Manning to provide information, close quote. And the indictment says the criminal acts include, quote, Assange took measures to conceal Manning as the source of the disclosure, close quote. If those are crimes, then Bob Woodward should be in the cell next to Assange. Protecting sources, encouraging sources to leak documents, using encrypted whistleblower submission systems. These are the basics of investigative journalism today. Major news organizations long ago adopted the key elements of the WikiLeaks approach, They all now have secured drop boxes for leaked material. They all publish wide-ranging primary source databases and documents alongside more traditional reported stories. And let's note that the Trump administration is not indicting Julian Assange for helping the Russians to make Trump president. That has nothing to do with this indictment. Trump did say, I love WikiLeaks. This, This arrest shows you what Trump's love will get you. 
Elsewhere in the news, Israelis elected Benjamin Netanyahu to a fourth consecutive term. During the campaign, Netanyahu said he would annex key parts of the West Bank, ending Palestinian chances for statehood, undermining Israel's democracy, and deepening the alienation between its right-wing coalition government and a majority of American Jews. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Harold, do we have Harold? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, very good to hear you. Okay. So, bad news about Bibi. What what does it mean for the United States and American Jews? Well, uh, for the United States, it means that uh, Trump has uh, con- continues to have yet another authoritarian inclined head of uh, head of government uh, he can uh, bond with. Uh, for American Jews, this just deepens the widening rift between the largely liberal American Jewish community and the uh, Israeli Jewish community. One of the distinctive uh, features of this last election was that the center-left and left parties in, uh, in Israel, the Labor Party and Meretz, uh, had the dismal uh, voter support combined uh, under 10 percent. Uh, labor, of course, was the dominant party in Israel for the first 25 years of the state's existence. Uh, it, it, it's clear at this point that uh, the governing coalition in uh, Israel is uh, has been and will continue to be uh, ranging from center-right right to lunatic right, nationalist right, bigoted right, uh, which is far from the politics of American Jews, and this rift is only going to get wider with this new government. And should Netanyahu embark on a policy of uh, partial annexation or full annexation of the West Bank, all of which would be unilateral with no Palestinian input, um, I, I think you would see uh, an even greater rift. I would think you would see not just the left, but liberals in America... Uh, supporting the boycott the divestment sanctions movement, you would see more Jews supporting it. Um, it's going really be a watershed moment and a real risk between the Jewish diaspora, which sort of existentially always supports minority rights and tolerance, and the uh, uh, Israeli Jewish community, which is moving towards completely rejecting those values. And let me just underline the ways that Donald Trump uh, worked for the the re-election of an Israeli leader in ways that no previous American president has. Trump moved the American embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Trump recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Trump closed the consulate in East Jerusalem that's the link with the Palestinians. And he's also sharply reduced humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians, uh, in what seems to be an attempt to force them to abandon their dreams of an independent state. And most ominous of all, at a congressional hearing on Tuesday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did what was once unthinkable. He refused to publicly recommit the United States to a two-state solution, and he refused to say whether it opposes unilateral annexation of the West Bank. So this is very much a Trump project that succeeded in Israel this week. 
it's a Trump project, and from Pompeo's point of view, it may be a evangelical project, since there are many evangelicals who believe that the Second Coming is premised on the uh, uh, Jews having uh, all of the ancient territory, which includes the West Bank, a kind of strange uh, belief on which to base a real-world foreign policy. But in the Trump administration, uh, there are a lot of strange characters. So, uh, yes, it's, uh, but, it, but it is a, a close uh, relationship between Netanyahu and Trump. And, you know, they're both also under a range of legal peril, even with uh, uh, the Mueller report not uh, uh, calling for, for Trump's indictment. Uh, and it's one, of the, one of the real uh, issues in Israel is whether some of the far-right parties that Netanyahu will have to uh, bring into his coalition will make a, a condition of, of their being with him that, that he does embark on annexation. And, of course, annexation would be, you know, I mean, there's no way that could happen without uh, a, a third intifada uh, erupting. So it's, uh, you know, not, not a very bright prospect uh, anywhere uh, coming out of this election that I could see anyway. And let's talk for a minute about APEC, <clears throat> about APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which, of course, has been in the news quite a bit over the last uh, weeks. They have, they're sort of the American lobbying group for Netanyahu and his uh, politics. You posted uh, an alarming report I had not been aware of at the American Prospect uh, today about some ads APEC has uh, started running. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah, it's, it's, it's peculiar. They, they, they took an ad on Facebook in, in the, the nation's three most populous states, California, Texas, and Florida, urging uh, you know their members to um, uh, tell Bernie Sanders to support Israel. Now, it's not like Bernie Sanders supports BDS. He does not. Uh, he has relatives in Israel. He is the first Jew ever to be a plausible, uh, you know, could, could well be the nominee of uh, one of the two major parties for president. And here you have um, APAC singling him out in a kind of indirect way for condemnation, that he's not to be relied upon. Uh, and I, I think this, this signals really the growing rift. Not a, it's not just, I've been talking about the rift between Israeli Jews and American Jews. There's a rift among American Jews uh, on these issues. Um, uh, the, the notion that AIPAC would single out the first American Jew who, uh, you know, stands a chance of being elected president uh, suggests the depth of this. But what was really, I think, revelatory was the fact that most of the major candidates uh, running for president in the Democratic uh, Party uh, did not show up at APAC's annual conference in D.C. a couple weeks ago, whereas in the past, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in many decades uh, going, in the past, um, this would have kind of been regarded as a de rigueur. You would, you would show up and you would speak, but the rightward movement of Israel and the rightward positioning of APAC within the American political uh, context uh, has created a new reality. And this is, in a sense, their, uh, the ad against Bernie is, is uh, just further confirms, I, I think, the uh, narrowing appeal of APAC to the American Jewish community. Yeah, there's been a, an ignorant assumption 
about uh, American Jewish politics for a long time, that if a candidate wants to uh, win Jewish support, you should emphasize how strongly you support Israel. For decades, all the public opinion polls have showed that the overwhelming majority of American Jews do not vote based on, quote, support for Israel. They are liberals. They have been Democrats. And that's true even more so since Trump became president. Oh, absolutely. And you had more than 70% of Jews voting Democratic uh, in the midterm elections. Uh, I think among Jewish young people, the, the figure would be far higher. Uh, so uh, it, it, it is the uh, preoccupation of uh, some American Jews, uh, not insignificant number, but it's, uh, it's a minority, and it's a decided minority. And they have, just as American politics generally are becoming more polarized, this polarization in the American Jewish community is, is, is growing as well. I mean, I think there are millions of American Jews who are, you know, appalled at uh, Apex's positions and the politics of someone like Sheldon Adelson, who was a leading supporter of the American right. Uh, and, and these rifts are only going to grow larger uh, in the foreseeable future. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect, and we're reviewing the bad news today. Uh, elsewhere in the bad news, Trump continues to clean house at the Department of Homeland Security. Of course, he fired the secretary, Kirsten Nelson, and he fired the head of the border poll and has proposed various reprehensible changes in our immigration and asylum rules. Where... Where should we start on this? Uh, how about Trump? <laughs> well, I mean, in a, in a certain sense, it is impressive that even given the execrable uh, uh, performance of the, the first and second round of Trump appointees, that he can still find people who are worse yes. uh, to, uh, oh. to succeed them when, oh. he, uh, when he cans them. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Kirsten Nielsen, who was the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and oversaw, you know, the policy of separating kids from their parents at the border was, we, we, we all thought, a pretty reprehensible character. But she wasn't hardline enough. Uh, and there have been uh, ample reports in the press, the New York Times and elsewhere, that Trump wants to resume some version of family separation at the border. And uh, having gotten beat up on this, I think quite properly, she, uh, she, uh, she apparently was a little reluctant to go there again. And she's out. So... Uh, you know, the other thing is this. Trump ran on sort of ridiculous uh, policies in 2016, not all of which he's been able to uh, to implement. He certainly hasn't stopped people uh, from coming up uh, uh, from nations to our south up, 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 to the, uh, up to the border. In fact, that number has increased as conditions in Central American nations in particular have grown more dangerous. Um, and so he just doubles down on his initial idiocies, and we are going to get people running government agencies who are even worse than their predecessors when we didn't think that was even a possible, you know, a theoretical possibility. Uh, you mentioned the Trump's family separation policy. Trump said on Tuesday, "quote President Obama had child separation. I'm the one who stopped it." Close quote. Wow, I hadn't heard that before. Uh, why not? No, no that, that, was, that was a number. A number of us hadn't heard that before because it's not true. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Obama didn't have that. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, not that that matters a lot in Trump land, uh, but it's something that you can get repeated 
in the right-wing echo chamber. No, this is Trump's creation. And, you know, even as he's saying that, he, there are also quotes about his desire to uh, re- reinstate it from uh, his, his earlier uh, decision to have families separated. So, so uh, my question go. here is the politics of all this. is uh, Immigration is a, a heartless, cruel, and, and a policy that violates uh, human rights. Uh, does Trump really think it's going to work for him as a political issue in 2020? Don't people care more about health care and a living wage and free college? Absolutely. And there are, uh, by actual count, a gazillion polls that show that to be the case. Uh, I was just looking at, there was one poll today out of, I can't remember, it was either Iowa or New Hampshire, and we we all understand why polls coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire uh, are are, are legion these days. That's where the Democratic primary season, that's where the primary season starts. Uh, And the two main issues were health care, and uh, the economy. I mean, immigration was nowhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's not, uh, it's an issue that matters to Trump's base. And much of what Trump is doing is ensuring that he retains the support of his base. Now, in 2018, in the midterm elections, that was not enough to produce Republican victories around the country. Um, and it's probably not enough to reelect Trump in 2020, given particularly the level of mobilization of Americans who are not in Trump's base. But it seems to be doubling down on his base seems to be his one essential political strategy. He's uh, lost a lot of legal challenges to his various decrees on immigration and asylum. The ACLU has sued him dozens of times and won almost every time, but that doesn't seem to matter to Trump's base. No. By the way, that's another, uh, this is another point of similarity between uh, uh, American and Israeli politics. The courts in Israel have uh, rejected a number of Netanyahu, uh, more ethnocentric uh, laws and policies, and, and Netanyahu is uh, railing against the court, the judiciary. In Israel, as uh, the right rails against the judiciary here, except when you know it consists of justices like uh, Gorsuch and, 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 and Kavanaugh. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, he plows on, uh, Trump does, against the uh, American judiciary, as Netanyahu does against the Israeli, and both of them retain the support of their basins in so doing. The, um, the New York Times and, and other uh, mainstream media have been running articles recently that, they, that the situation at the border is a crisis, is a disaster, and in fact, the American prospect, some, some of your colleagues have suggested that uh, Trump could actually get some traction with this. What, what is going to be the liberal, what is the liberal response to the crisis at the border? Well, for one thing, the reason there's a crisis at the border is there's a crisis in, uh, in Central America, a crisis of a breakdown of, uh, of, of order, a crisis of uh, economic conditions, and the liberal response has to be to deal with that. I mean, I think uh, the fact that California Governor Gavin Newsom has been visiting El Salvador is uh, reflects at least an understanding that that's where the problem originates, and that uh, the American response has to include major assistance to El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, uh, 
so that people don't feel compelled to up and leave uh, their homes and make a long and not necessarily all that safe journey uh, uh, to the border. So that's one element. Another element, obviously, is staffing up so that we can take asylum requests and immigrant arrivals seriously. I mean, you know, this is what New York was facing in, uh, in 1910, 1912, 1913. Scores of immigrants. New York seems to have done okay, uh, uh, you know, in the years since. And uh, we can certainly do okay, particularly given that this is a nation where a lot of recent studies show uh, most of the non-metropolitan areas in this country are kind of emptying out. And if we don't want them to die entirely, they're going to need uh, the kind of energy and numbers uh, of, uh, of immigrants. We're going to need the energy and number of immigrants. Harold Meyerson, you can read him at the latimes.com and at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, after the American Civil War, America created the, fir the world's first interracial democracy. Historian Eric Foner will explain. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Stephen Miller is the evil force pushing Trump towards ever more draconian treatment of immigrants and asylum seekers. But who is Stephen Miller? Lori Weiner will be here with some answers. But There's for, a new show but, premiering on TV this week, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. It's a four-hour documentary on PBS produced and hosted by Henry Louis Gates, Jr. It explores the years after the Civil War when the country struggled to rebuild the South in the face of massive destruction and revolutionary social change. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He was the chief historical advisor on the show. He's the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University, author of many award-winning books, including Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He's also a member of the editorial board of The Nation. We reach him today in Manhattan. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, you say that America in the late 1860s was the first time in this country, or really anywhere, that an interracial democracy was created. But that's not the way a lot of us learned about the South after the Civil War. Uh, no, that is true. And one of the purposes of this uh, series, this documentary on Reconstruction, is to try to, uh, A, disabuse people of some of the mythology that is still perhaps being taught in schools in various places about Reconstruction. Uh, certainly what I learned in school when I was uh, growing up a good while ago. Um, and also to provide a different point of view. And that point of view, as you said, is that Reconstruction, when for the first time in our history, African-American men in any num real numbers were allowed to vote and hold public office, uh, this was a major step in the history of American democracy, and in fact, democracy all around the world. 
interracial democracy, biracial democracy, was an extremely rare thing in the 19th century world. And interracial democracy, that, of course, means black voters, in this case, voters who had been slaves a few years earlier, and black candidates. I know that a few years ago, you set out to identify all the black men who had been elected to office during Reconstruction. There's a famous Courier and Ives print from 1872 showing the black men in Congress, one senator and six representatives, all from the South. How many others did you find? Well, in Congress, there were two black senators during Reconstruction. The first was Hiram Revels, who's in that lithograph, and the second was Blanche K. Bruce a little later. I think there were 14 members of the House of Representatives at one time or another during Reconstruction. Uh, But then you go out to much larger numbers in lesser posts, uh, members of state legislatures. There were several hundred of them. Uh, And then you can go down to school board officials, justices of the peace, you know, sheriffs, uh, tax collectors, you name it. I found, and in a book of mine about 20 years ago, I I discussed a little, I I published little capsule biographies of about 1,500 of them. Uh, And I'm sure there were other local officials that uh, haven't yet quite gotten into the historical record. So I emphasize maybe about 2,000, I estimate 2,000 African-American public office holders. I'm not talking about newspaper editors. I'm not talking about uh, political party activists. There were more of them. Public office holders of one kind or another, either elected or appointed, about 2,000. And how many black elected public officials were there before the Civil War? As far as I can tell, two, although there might have been one or two more. There was a fellow, both of them were justices of the peace in the north. There was uh, Macon Allen in Massachusetts and um, John Langston, I think, out in Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, There probably were one or two more, but really black office holding was fundamentally unknown before the Civil War. And indeed, blacks could only vote before the Civil War in a handful of northern states, all of them uh, in New England. Uh, where the black population was minuscule. So uh, black political power was really not known very much before the Civil War, and Reconstruction created it. And that, of course, was what led to the violent reaction and opposition to Reconstruction, this shift of political power in the South. It's not that blacks ran the whole South, not at all, but they exercised genuine political power in a in states where which had been slave states up to a few years before. Before we get to the white response to the election of black leaders in the Reconstruction South, I wanted to ask whether among the 2,000 elected black men you discovered during Reconstruction, are there any particularly illuminating people who we should know about? Oh, well, we should know about all of them, basically. One of the, we mentioned before that uh, really there's still a lot of misconception or just lack of knowledge about Reconstruction. Uh, For example, I believe there's a lot of debate, as you know, about Confederate monuments. Uh, I believe there's only one little statue or bust of a black congressman from Reconstruction in the South. That would be Robert Smalls in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, Somebody sent me an email the other day saying they had unveiled a little plaque about Lawrence Kane, who was a member of the South Carolina legislature from Edgefield County in Reconstruction. But, you know, with 2,000 of them, uh, there's hardly any notice of them in uh, the southern public landscape. This is one of the major problems 
when you're thinking about Confederate monuments. The whole presentation of history in the South is totally one-sided. You got every Confederate colonel's got a got a statue on a horse, but um, major black figures, senators, congressmen, and down to local ones get no public recognition uh, whatsoever. Robert Smalls, who I mentioned, was certainly a tremendously uh, important and remarkable person. You know, he was a slave, and very famously during the Civil War, he uh, put his, he he was a pilot on a little Confederate ship in Charleston Harbor. And one night he put his family, his wife, children, some friends on the ship and sailed it out and surrendered it to the Union forces blockading uh, Charleston Harbor. And he became a kind of a hero for a while in the Civil War. Later he went back to Beaufort, where he came from, and became really the local political boss. He was in the legislature. He was elected to Congress. He was in the state constitutional convention. He was at a federal appointment as collector of customs for many, many years, including after Reconstruction. So he's, Smalls is a good example of how a person who had been a slave can actually rise to significant local political power uh, during Reconstruction. There were many, many remarkable uh, black officials, Francis Cardozo's in South Carolina, who really oversaw the establishment of the first public school system in the history of that state. There were people like James Lynch, the Secretary of State of Mississippi, who was renowned as an orator. People would come from miles and miles away just to hear him uh, give his um, give his speeches. But what really struck me in doing this work, and what we talk about, of course, in the series, is these local people. Many of them, we don't know that much about them, but how they kind of stepped up into positions of responsibility and tried to serve the interests of their own people and indeed of the whole uh, of the whole society justices of the peace you know school board officials people like that uh, that's what's really remarkable to me not the 15 or 16 who served in congress but these local guys who um really emerged almost out of nowhere as far as the historical record is concerned to uh, take up the mantle of making freedom something substantive for the black community and what would you say are the most significant lasting political achievements of Reconstruction America? Well, of course, the, the most tangible legacy of Reconstruction is the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution, which really transformed the Constitution. Some people, including me, call it the second founding. In fact, by coincidence, that's the title of a book of mine that's coming out in the fall, okay. The Second Founding how the Civil War and Reconstruction remade the Constitution. These amendments abolished slavery. In the 14th Amendment, they put into the Constitution for the first time the principle of birthright citizenship, still debated today, equal protection of the law regardless of race. The 15th Amendment tried to guarantee the right to vote for black men all over the country, not just in the South. And these are still in the Constitution. You know, for a long time, they were fundamentally abrogated by the Supreme Court. The South was able to just violate these amendments with the acquiescence of the Supreme Court. But they are still there, and they became the legal foundation for the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s, which is sometimes called the Second Reconstruction. But there are many other legacies of Reconstruction that are tremendously important. The black church as a large independent institution is created during Reconstruction. There have been black churches before, but it's in Reconstruction that it becomes this giant center of the black community, which it remains all the way to the present. Public education in the South for whites and blacks, 
uh, created during Reconstruction. The black colleges, which have uh, educated you know thousands and thousands of African Americans, come out of Reconstruction. Uh, so you know uh, the political gains of Reconstruction are later reversed. There's no question about that. The right to vote is taken away around the turn of the century. But these other accomplishments survive. So we should, even though we often get into a frame of mind where we're saying, oh, Reconstruction failed, Reconstruction failed, it didn't fail entirely. Some of it failed, but it did leave legacies which became the springboard for future struggles. Twelve years of Reconstruction and then 75 years of segregation, lynching, denial of the right to vote, how did that happen? I would amend your question slightly to say the rise of Jim Crow segregation lynching didn't occur immediately. We usually say Reconstruction ended around 1877, but there then followed almost a generation of a kind of twilight zone where some blacks retained the right to vote, others didn't. These institutions continued to thrive. There was a deterioration, but not, but history never just ends at one particular moment. It wasn't until really around the turn of the century, that racial segregation was fully implemented in the South, disenfranchisement was fully implemented. And at that point, you have the Jim Crow system fully in place. But that's a generation after the end of Reconstruction. Nonetheless, it happened, whether it happened slowly or, or quickly may not really be the main problem. It happened because of the violent terrorism, you might really, you should call it, of the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that, which helped to overthrow the Reconstruction governments one by one and to put back into power white supremacist Democrats, who then, over the next years, worked on ways to restore white supremacy in the South. It also happened because of a retreat on the part of the North. There's some debate among historians about how rapid that retreat was. Was it all at once after 1877 or slowly? Again, it may not matter in the long run, but um, I go for the slow uh, explanation that it took a while for this retreat to be fully in force. The Supreme Court, I mean, I think Reconstruction and its aftermath is a lesson which is certainly relevant today of what can happen to your constitutional rights in the hands of a supreme a conservative supreme court one by one case by case the rights guaranteed in the constitution were whittled away or abrogated by the supreme court until it gave complete carte blanche to the white south to do whatever it wanted in uh, in race relations without any interference from the federal government the pbs show on reconstruction is not exclusively about 19th century America. The video at one point shows white nationalists in Charlottesville marching in the dark, carrying torches, and host and producer Skip Gates asks you whether you believe we as a nation are still undergoing the process of Reconstruction. What's your answer? My answer is that Reconstruction, the term, really means two things at the same time. One, it is a specific period of American history right after the Civil War, whether it ended in 1877, 1880, you can debate that. But it's a time period, like the era of good feelings or the Gilded Age or the Progressive Era. But Reconstruction is also a historical process. It's the process by which the United States tried to come to terms with the consequences of the Civil War, the two most important of which were the reunification or the, the you know survival of the nation-state, and the second the destruction of the institution of slavery. 
And in some ways, we are still trying to come to terms with the consequences of the destruction of the institution of slavery. As you see in that clip of the white supremacist martyrs, there are still Americans, uh, too many of them, who really cannot accept the logic of the end of slavery, that black people are equal citizens. So in that sense, we are still living in Reconstruction. We are still fighting over the issues. Who should have the right to vote? Who is a citizen? How do you protect Americans from terrorism? These are all Reconstruction questions, and they are right on the front pages of our newspapers today. So in that sense, Reconstruction never ended. The New York Times asked Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor who's producer and host of the PBS series on Reconstruction, if you could require the president to read one book, what would it be? And his answer was Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, especially the sections about Andrew Johnson. If Trump took the advice of Skip Gates, what might he learn from those sections? Well, that was very kind of Professor Gates. Unfortunately, uh, my impression is that the president of the United States has never read a book and therefore the chance of him reading this one is fairly remote. Uh, If he did pick it up, he would find that Andrew Johnson was his predecessor, Uh, not in ways that I would praise, but Andrew Johnson as president, of course, he succeeded Lincoln. He was the vice president when Lincoln was assassinated, completely opposed any rights for black people. Uh, He opposed congressional actions to protect the rights of black people. He vetoed the first civil rights law in American history in 1866. He told the states not to ratify the 14th Amendment. And he, he helped to formulate some of the arguments against federal protection of the rights of black people that are still used today. The idea of reverse discrimination. He didn't use that term exactly, but in the civil rights veto, he said, You know, this bill, which basically created the equal citizenship of black people, gives all the advantage to blacks and none to whites. And this idea that somehow uplifting blacks takes something away from white people is certainly something that Trump has has appealed to. So I think Trump would find a kindred spirit, actually, in uh, Andrew Johnson, even though most historians today really think very uh, poorly of Andrew Johnson. He usually turns up at the very bottom of these, uh, you know, rankings that historians sometimes do, rating the presidents from the great to the uh, abysmal. Now, Trump is giving him a run for his money. So Johnson may be boosted up to be the next to the worst president. But there, I think what Gates is trying to say is we have had in the White House before men who try to build their political career on stirring up racism, stirring up hatred of the other Uh, and appealing to white privilege and white supremacy. The PBS series Reconstruction started this week. There are two two two-hour shows. It continues next week. Eric Foner is the chief historical advisor featured in the series. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. Thanks very much. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Stephen Miller. How did he get that way? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. (laughs) 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, in President Trump's latest blow-up over immigration, Stephen Miller has played the central role goading him to close the border, warning him of the dangers of looking weak, and encouraging Trump's sudden purge of his Homeland Security team, including the firing of the head of the Department of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, as well as the head of the Border Patrol. The Washington Post describes Stephen Miller as ascendant among Trump advisors, quote, as he pushes a frustrated president to champion draconian border policies and rhetoric. He's all but untouchable in the White House at this point, where, according to the Washington Post, Stephen Miller represents Trump's id. Trump is only 33. He grew up in one of the most progressive cities in America, Santa Monica. He's from a middle-class Jewish family. He went to public schools, including Santa Monica High School. What happened to Stephen Miller? What explains how he became a fiery right-wing ideologue? What explains his triumph in Trump land? For some answers, we turn to Lori Weiner. She did a deep dive into Stephen Miller's early life for L.A. Magazine. She's a longtime journalist who's been on staff at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the L.A. Times. She's also a founding editor of the L.A. Review of Books and former host of the LARB Radio Hour right here on KPFK. Lori Weiner, welcome. Thank you, John. Well, just a bit of history. Remember Trump's original Muslim travel ban from his first week in office, that disaster that was stopped by the court? Stephen Miller helped draft that executive order. And remember when the federal government shut down over that high-stakes standoff over immigration? Stephen Miller was accused of derailing the negotiations. So he's done a lot, mostly on immigration. Let's start with the basics of young Stephen Miller. Before he became this kind of hyperactive right-wing activist, he grew up in Santa Monica. You asked people there about his formative years. How many people did you talk to? Um, I called, uh, I tried to contact, I contacted about 100 people, but wow. um, I spoke to about 35, and about 20 of those went on the record. There are old family friends who did not want to go on the record, and there are people from his high school who simply did not want to talk about him. But but there were people who were very happy to talk about I'm, him as well. I wow, what a lot, what a lot of people you've talked to. Let's start with uh, with the parents. Maybe it's all their fault. Uh, maybe uh, it's possible. Probably the mother's fault. Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, they are uh, Michael and Miriam Miller, and they are uh, real estate um, invest. They have a real estate investment company, and they manage uh, about twenty five hundred properties, uh, residential units uh, in Pico Rivera and Valley Village, and um, they are interesting. We've we've heard a lot from Miriam's brother, David Glosser who is um, a retired um, neuropsychologist in, in sorry, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, but the other side of the family, the, the Miller side, is uh, they're from L.A., and, and they were very, very wealthy, um, always. I mean, at least since the early 80s. Uh, Michael's father, Jacob, known as Jay, was also in real estate, and, and he became very wealthy 
Um, he helped develop parts of Brentwood near the freeway in the early 80s. And when he died in 2015, his house in Malibu Cove, shortly afterwards, sold for $7 million. So This was, is the grandfather. Yes, Jacob Jay is the grandfather. Michael is the father. And what do we know about the father, the parents' politics when young Stephen was, you know, a kid? Well, the parents were both liberal when they were young people in the early 70s. She got a degree in sociology from Columbia in 72. And he, when he was an undergraduate at um, UC Santa Cruz, he was against the Vietnam War. He was pro-Palestinian. And so they really had uh, an evolution because they were they were very gung-ho for Ted Cruz in 2016. So they were not Donald Trump supporters, but they were very happy when their son went to work for him. But anyway, so at some point, their politics changed. And Stephen may have been a linchpin in changing their politics because he became very politicized when he was only when he was in high school after right after 2011. I'm sorry, right after 9-11. <laughs> OK. And uh, and then the parents followed. And now, according to old friends of Michael Miller's, um, Michael is is quite far to the right. Um, so and Stephen may have helped lead them there. Well, you interviewed a lot of his childhood friends and school classmates, and one of them told you that in middle school, Stephen Miller was, quote, a quiet, shy kid, close quote, that that the change in his politics and his personality occurred in high school, which is when he became what I would call a right-wing jerk. What do we know about uh, him before high school? Um, the woman, the young woman that you're referring to, she told me that she remembered being at a barbecue with him in middle school with Stephen and that they, he was a little shy, but he liked saying things from out of left field and it was funny. Like he would, you know, just say something crazy and everyone would laugh. And so he kind of had that impulse. Um, a teacher of his uh, at Hebrew school told me that he's a born uh, he's an oppositionalist. That is just his nature, um, and and then after nine eleven, he started to become outraged at things that were going on around him at Santa Monica High School. He was outraged that there were so many Hispanic ch- uh, students there. Yeah, I, it, it struck me from reading your piece in LA Magazine that he was especially focused on the Hispanic club at Santa Monica High School. Uh, They didn't really have anything to do with 9-11. What was his beef with the Hispanic club? Uh, He was very angry. Well, first he noted that uh, there were were many Hispanic students at the school, but very few in his honors classes. And there was, uh, there were movements afoot to help, uh, by, to, to, for bilingual education, um, that the school board was was trying to help uh, students who were having trouble in English. He was very much against these measures. He would go to the school board meetings regularly and argue against this. And uh, he said that we were being, you know, dis- that we were being disrespectful to Hispanics by giving them these crutches. Mm. That so, was what he argued. so the. Um 
the early focus on the Hispanic club at Santa Monica High does sort of anticipate his obsession with the border, with Mexicans and Central Americans coming to the United States. Uh, and that is, seems to have remained a central, what shall we call it, preoccupation, obsession of his ever since high school. Uh, a turning point in his high school years seems to be something his classmates told you about called the janitor speech. What what was the janitor speech? Well, I have good news for your listeners. Anyone can listen to and watch the janitor speech on the internet, Jeez. and I highly recommend it. But I'll do my my best imitation of Stephen Thank Miller. You. He he's he's running for some something. I don't think it's class president, but he's running for some class office, which he did not win. But um, he gets up and he says, "Is anyone else outraged?" by the fact that we have to pick up our own garbage when we have janitors to do that. And he kind of loses it a little bit. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so people were just shocked, and they were like, is he kidding? Is he trying to get laughs? What is happening? Um, I think, you know, I think that we all try to get attention whatever way we can with whatever we're given. And I think he found this as his way to become a personage at Santa Monica High School. I also think he has a, you know, a very prominent sadistic streak that was coming out even then. Um, may I read you something brief that he wrote when he was 16 years old? And Please. Um, so he, this is when one of his crusades at the high school was to make sure that the, the Pledge of Allegiance was said uh, every morning. Uh, he did they were not saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and he, he did succeed in getting it uh, recited twice a week in Santa Monica High School. But anyway, he wrote a piece about that, and um, he said that um, at least one would hope that on Veterans Day or Thanksgiving, students are taught about our brave U.S. soldiers or the courageous pilgrims, but no such explanations are given. It's kind of hard to believe that no one was taught about the pilgrims, but anyway, and then he says... After all, the United States has used our soldiers to kill innocent people, and the same Indians that helped the pilgrims were either shot or put on reservations. I suppose then that our country would have been better off if, we, if our soldiers had never killed anyone, and we watched as our nation was obliterated by the evil in the world as we sung songs of peace and love. Or better yet, we could have lived with the Indians. We could have lived with the Indians, learning how to finger pain and make teepees excusing their scalping of frontiersmen as part of their culture. <sighs> so his need to, you know, to belittle was always there. But I, I thought that was interesting because he says the Indians helped the pilgrims. And then in the very next sentence, he calls them evil. Mm -hmm. And so some of his seams are showing here, but he, he does not show his seams anymore. That was way back in his high school uh, days. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Lori Weiner about Stephen Miller, the evil genius behind Trump's immigration policies. And we're trying to figure out what happened to him since he comes from a liberal family in Santa Monica. The change happened in high school. Um, one person you talked to said that in high school, quote, it seemed like he wanted people to hate him, close quote. Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, that is uh, attention is oxygen to him. Um, and and this was and this was his way of getting it. I also think, you know, having done a lot of research about his life and I plan to do more research because 
there's stuff I want to know about the other side of the family, not the Glossers, who we've heard from, but the Millers, who are all from California. Um, but I think that, that um, Stephen Miller is like the Holocaust in that as much as you read about him, you will never understand mm. how he happened. Uh, you may have some brief, you know, gl- brief insights where you think you do for a second, but uh, he will remain mi- a mystery, I'm sure. Well, another fascinating fact that you uncovered, uh, one of his uh, high school classmates told you, quote, he never went to parties. He didn't express any interest in dating. He was a virtual loner obsessed with guns at age 17. Scary, close quote. Yes. uh, One of his classmates did tell me that. Um, When he began to get politicized uh, at age 15 or 16, his best friend was a guy named Chris Moritz, who, of course, I tried to contact in every possible way I could think of. Um, But, of course, he did not want to talk. But Stephen and Chris were inseparable. They dressed identically. They 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 dressed in suits and ties, and they brought briefcases to school. <sighs> and uh, of course, they were only people in Santa Monica High dressing that way. And Chris Moritz also wrote a bunch of pieces like the one I just read from Stephen Miller. And and the two of them really helped cement each other's political beliefs and, and status as outsiders um, at Santa Monica uh, High School. And the other thing that you found about his high school days was that he complained often to the school administration that he was being bullied and victimized by his classmates. Was he being bullied and victimized by his classmates? I do not believe that he was. Uh, um, The people that, that I did speak to said no one bullied him. In fact, the administration went out of their way to accommodate some of his beliefs and requests, such as bringing to campus right-wing radio hosts uh, Larry Elder and David Horowitz to speak on campus. They did kind of put up a fight about it, but Stephen was extremely savvy about how to fight these battles, even at age 16. And he did get those uh, speakers to come. So David Horowitz and and, uh, Larry Elder, were these mentors to him? Did he learn his lines from them? I don't think so. I think that, well, they, I spoke to both of them. They're very proud that they had any part in um, helping to bring up this young man. But I think, you know, it's, it's similar to the situation with Miller and Trump. It's like he's leading them. I mean, he goes beyond what they believe. (laughs) And has less shame and you know he is he is himself he became himself and i don't think anyone took him there and after santa monica high he went to duke and then eventually he became press secretary to michelle bachman your minnesota moment one of the most outrageous people in congress yes and then he became <clears throat> and then he became I get choked up just saying. I do too. I communications know. director for Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, a Jewish guy from Santa Monica working for Jeff Sessions. You got to call that provocative. It's so crazy. And Stephen Miller will be there until the end. I mean, he and, you know, he's outlived. Look at all of the people he has outlived in the Trump administration. He and Kellyanne will be the last people to go down. They will go down with Trump. He he will be there till the end. 
One person told you, quote, he's exactly the same now as he was in high school. He has a drive for pissing off people. It's a strange way to go about life, close quote. Yes, several people said it is uncanny. He was fully formed. He is almost exactly the same person he was in high school, the same permanent air of trolling. And there he was. He emerged at Santa, Santa Monica High Perfect fully formed. My last question, I tried to find the answer uh, with Google. Is Stephen Miller married? There's nothing about this anywhere on the internet. Stephen Miller is not married. Stephen Miller is not married. Lori Weiner, she reported on Stephen Miller's high school years. He's exactly the same now as he was in high school. That was for LA Magazine. Still online at lamagazine.com. Lori Weiner, thanks for coming in today. Such a pleasure. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson, had today's political update. Eric Foner talked about the new TV documentary series, Reconstruction. It's on PBS this week and next week. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.